Truth of Intercourse by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Among sayings that have a currency, in spite of being wholly false upon the face of them for the sake of a half-truth upon another subject which is accidentally combined with error, one of the grossest and broadest conveys the monstrous proposition that it is easy to tell the truth and hard to tell a lie. I wish heartily it were, but the truth is one. It has first to be discovered, then justly and exactly uttered, even with instruments specially contrived for such a purpose, with a foot-rule, a level, or a theodolite, it is not easy to be exact. It is easier, alas, to be inexact. From those who mark the divisions on a scale, to those who measure the boundaries of empires, or the distance of the heavenly stars, it is by careful method and minute, unwearying attention that men rise even to material exactness or to sure knowledge even of external and constant things. But it is easier to draw the outline of a mountain than the changing appearance of a face. And truth in human relations is of this more intangible and dubious order, hard to seize, harder to communicate. Veracity to facts, in a loose colloquial sense, not to say that I have been in Malabar, when, as a matter of fact, I was never out of England, not to say that I have read Cervantes in the original, when, as a matter of fact, I know not one syllable of Spanish, this indeed is easy, and to the same degree unimportant in itself. Lies of this sort, according to circumstances, may or may not be important. In a certain sense, even the may or may not be false. The habitual liar may be a very honest fellow, and live truly with his wife and friends, while another man who never told a formal falsehood in his life may yet be himself, one lie heart and face from top to bottom. This is the kind of lie which poisons intimacy, and vice versa, veracity to sentiment, truth in a relation, truth to your own heart and your friends, never to feign or falsify emotion. That is the truth which makes love possible and mankind happy. L'art de bien dire is but a drawing-room accomplishment unless it be pressed into the service of the truth. The difficulty of literature is not to write, but to write what you mean, not to affect your reader, but to affect him precisely as you wish. This is commonly understood in the case of books or set orations. Even in making your will or writing an explicit letter, some difficulty is admitted by the world. But one thing you can never make Philistine natures understand one thing, which yet lies on the surface, remains as unseizable to their wits as a high flight of metaphysics, namely, that the business of life is mainly carried on by means of this difficult art of literature, and according to a man's proficiency in that art, shall be the freedom and the fullness of his intercourse with other men. Anybody, it is supposed, can say what he means, and in spite of their notorious experience to the contrary, people so continue to suppose. Now, I simply opened the last book I have been reading, 
Mr. Lalande's captivating English gypsies. It is said, I find on page 7, that those who can converse with Irish peasants in their own native tongue form far higher opinions of their appreciation of the beautiful, and of the elements of humor and pathos in their hearts, than do those who know their thoughts only through the medium of English. I know from my own observations that this is quite the case with the Indians of North America, and it is unquestionably so with the gypsy. In short, where a man has not a full possession of the language, the most important, because the most amiable, qualities of his nature have to lie buried and fallow, for the pleasure of comradeship and the intellect part of love, rest upon these very elements of humor and pathos. Here is a man opulent in both, and for lack of a medium he can put none of it out to interest in the mark of affection. But what is thus made plain to our apprehensions is, in the case of a foreign language, is partially true even with the tongue we learned in childhood. Indeed, we all speak different dialects. One shall be copious and exact, another loose and meager. But the speech of the ideal talker shall correspond and fit upon the truth of fact, not clumsily obscuring liniments like a mantle, but cleanly adhering like an athlete's skin. And what is the result? That the one can open himself more clearly to his friends, and can enjoy more of what makes life truly valuable, intimacy with those he loves. An orator makes a false step. He employs some trivial, some absurd, some vulgar phrase. In the turn of a sentence, he insults by a sidewind those whom he is laboring to charm. In speaking to one sentiment, he unconsciously ruffles another in parentheses. And you are not surprised, for you know his task is to be delicate and filled with perils. O frivolous mind of man, light ignorance! As if yourself, when you seek to explain some misunderstanding or excuse, some apparent fault, speaking swiftly and addressing in a mind still recently incensed, were not harnessing for a more perilous adventure, as if yourself required less tact and eloquence, as if an angry friend or a suspicious lover were not more easy to offend than a meeting of indifferent politicians. Nay, and the orator treads in a beaten round, the matters he discusses speaks out of a cut and dry vocabulary. But you may it not be that your defense reposes on some subtlety of feeling, not so much as touched upon in Shakespeare, to express which, like a pioneer, you must venture forth into zones of thought still unsurveyed, and become yourself a literary innovator? For even in love there are unlovely humors, ambiguous acts, unpardonable words, may yet have sprung from a kind of sentiment. If the injured one could read your heart, you may be sure that he would understand and pardon. But alas, the heart cannot be shown. It has to be demonstrated in words. Do you think it is a hard thing to write poetry? Why, that is to write poetry, and of a high, if not the highest, order. I should even more admire the lifelong and heroic literary labors of my fellow men, patiently clearing up in words their loves and their contentions, 
and speaking their autobiography daily to their wives, were it not for a circumstance which lessens their difficulty and my admiration by equal parts. For life, though largely, is not entirely carried on by literature. We are subject to physical passions and contortions. The voice breaks and changes and speaks by unconscious and winning inflections. We have legible countenances, like an open book, things that cannot be said look eloquently through the eyes, and the soul, not locked into body as the dungeon, dwells ever on the threshold with appealing signals. Groans and tears, looks and gestures, a flush or a paleness, are often the most clear reporters of the heart, and speak more directly to the hearts of others. The message flies by these interpreters in the least space of time, and the misunderstanding is averted in the moment of its birth. To explain in words takes time, and a just and patient hearing, and in the critical epochs of a close relation, patience and justice are not qualities on which we can rely, but the look or the gesture explains things in a breath. They tell their message without ambiguity, unlike speech they cannot stumble, by the way on a reproach or an illusion that should steal your friend against the truth, and then they have a higher authority, for they are the direct expression of the heart, not yet transmitted through the unfaithful and sophisticating brain. Not long ago I wrote a, a letter to a friend which came near involving us in a quarrel. But we met, and in personal talk I repeated the worst of what I had written, and added worse to that and with a commentary of the body it seemed not unfriendly either to hear or say. Indeed, letters are in vain for the purposes of intimacy. An absence is a dead break in the relation. Yet two who know each other fully, and are bent on perpetuity in love, may so preserve the attitude of their affections that they may meet on the same terms as they had parted. Pitiful is the case of the blind, who cannot read the face, pitiful that of the deaf, who cannot follow the changes of the voice. And there are others also to be pitied, for there are some of an inert, uneloquent nature, who have been denied all the symbols of communication, who have neither a lively play of facial expression, nor speaking gestures, nor a responsive voice, nor yet the gift of frank, explanatory speech, People truly made of clay, people tied for life into a bag which no one can undo. They are poorer than the gypsy, for their heart can speak no language under heaven. Such people we must learn slowly by the tenor of their acts, or through yea and nay communications, or we can take them on trust on the strength of a general air, and now and again, when we see the spirit breaking through in a flash, correct, or change our estimate. But these will be uphill intimacies, without charm or freedom, to the end. And freedom is the chief ingredient in confidence. Some minds, romantically dull despite physical endowments, that is, a um, doctrine for a misanthrope, to those who like their fellow creatures, it must always be meaningless, and for my part, I can see few things more desirable. After the possession of such radical qualities as honor and humor and pathos, 
than to have a lively and not a stolid countenance, to have looks to correspond with every feeling, to be elegant and delightful in person, so that we shall please even in the intervals of active pleasing, and may never discredit speech with uncouth manners, or become unconsciously our own burlesques. But of all unfortunates, there is one creature, for I will not call him man, conspicuous in misfortune. This is he who has forfeited his birthright of expression, who has cultivated artful intonations, who has taught his face tricks like a pet monkey, and on every side perverted or cut off his means of communication with his fellow men. The body is a house of many windows. There we all sit, showing ourselves and crying on the passers-by to come and love us. But this fellow has filled his windows with opaque glass, elegantly colored. His house may be admired for its design, the crowd may pause before the stained windows, but meanwhile the poor proprietor must lie languishing within, uncomforted, unchangeably alone. Truth of intercourse is something more difficult than to refrain from open lies. It is possible to avoid falsehood and yet not tell the truth. It is not enough to answer formal questions. To reach the truth by yea and nay communications implies a questioner with a share of inspiration such as is found often in mutual love. Yea and nay mean nothing. The meaning must have been related in the question. Many words are often necessary to convey a very simple statement, for in this sort of exercise we never hit the gold. The most that we can hope is by many arrows, more or less far off on different sides, to indicate in the course of time for what target we are aiming, and after an hour's talk, back and forward, to convey the purport of a single principle or a single thought. And yet while the curt, piety speaker misses the point entirely, a wordy, prolegomenous babbler will often add three new offenses in the process of excusing one. It is really a most delicate affair. The world was made before the English language, and seemingly upon a different design. Suppose we held our converse not in words, but in music. Those who have a bad ear would find themselves cut off from all near commerce, and no better than foreigners in this big world. But we do not consider how many have a bad ear for words, nor how often the most eloquent find nothing to reply. I hate questioners and questions. There are so few that can be spoken to without a lie. Do you forgive me? Madame and sweetheart, so far as I have gone in life, I have never yet been able to discover what forgiveness means. Is it still the same between us? Why, how can it be? It is eternally different, and yet you are still the friend of my heart. Do you understand me? God knows I should think it highly improbable. The cruelest lies are often told in silence. A man may have sat in a room for hours and not opened his teeth, and yet come out of that room a disloyal friend, or a vile calumniator. And how many loves have perished because of pride, or spite, or diffidence, or that unmanly shame which withholds a man from daring to betray emotion, a lover, at the critical point of the relation, has but hung his head and held his tongue, 
And again, a lie may be told by a truth, or a truth conveyed through a lie. Truth to facts is not always truth to sentiment, and part of the truth, as often happens in answer to a question, may be the foulest calumny. A fact may be an exception, but the feeling is the law, and it is that which you must neither garble nor belie. The whole tenor of a conversation is a part of the meaning of each separate statement. The beginning and the end define and travesty the intermediate conversation. You never speak to God. You address a fellow man full of his own tempers, and to tell truth, rightly understood, is not to state the true facts, but to convey a true impression. Truth in spirit, not truth to letter, is the true veracity. To reconcile averted friends, a Jesuitical discretion is often needful, not so much to gain a kind hearing as to communicate sober truth. Women have an ill name in this connection, yet they live in as true relations. The lie of a good woman is the true index of her heart. It takes, says Thoreau, in the noblest and useful of passages, I remember to have read in any modern author, one, two, two to speak truth, one to speak, and another to hear. He must be very little experienced, or have no great zeal for truth, who does not recognize the fact. A grain of anger or a grain of suspicion produces strange acoustical effects, and makes the ear greedy to remark offense. Hence we find those who have once quarreled carry themselves distantly, and are ever ready to break the truce. To speak truth, there must be moral equality, or else no respect. And hence, between parent and child, intercourse is apt to degenerate into a verbal fencing bout, and misapprehensions to become ingrained. And there is another side to this, for the parent begins with an imperfect notion of the child's character, formed in early years or during equinoctial gales of youth. To this he adheres, noting only the facts which suit with his preconception. And wherever a person fancies himself unjustly judged, he at once and finally gives up the effort to speak truth. With our chosen friends, on the other hand, and still more between lovers, for mutual understanding is love's essence, the truth is easily indicated by the one and aptly comprehended by the other. A hint taken, a look understood, conveys the gist of long and delicate explanations, and where the life is known even yea and nay become luminous, in the closest of all relations, that of a love well-founded and equally shared speech is half-discarded, like a roundabout, infantile process or a ceremony of formal etiquette, and the two communicate directly by their presences, and with few looks and fewer words contrive to share their good and evil and uphold each other's heart in joy. For love rests upon a physical basis. It is a familiarity of nature's making and apart from voluntary choice. Understanding has in some sort outrun knowledge, but the affection perhaps began with the acquaintance, and as it was not made like other relations, so it is not, like them, to be perturbed or clouded. Each knows more than can be uttered, each lives by faith, and believes by a natural compulsion, 
and between man and wife the language of the body is largely developed and grown strangely eloquent. The thought that prompted and was conveyed in a caress would only lose to be set down in words, ay, although Shakespeare himself should be the scribe. Yet it is in these dear intimacies beyond all others that we must strive and do battle for the truth. Let but a doubt arise, and alas, all the previous intimacy and confidence is but another charge against the person doubted. What a monstrous dishonesty is this, if I have been deceived so long and so completely. Let but that thought gain entrance and you plead before a deaf tribunal. Appeal to the past. Why, that is your crime. Make all clear. Convince the reason. Alas, speciousness is but a proof against you. If you can abuse me now, the more likely that you have abused me from the first. For a strong affection, such moments are worth supporting, and they will end well. For your advocate is in your lover's heart, and speaks her own language. It is not you, but she herself who can defend and clear you of the charge, but in slighter intimacies, and for a less stringent union, indeed, is it worth while? We are all incompris, only more or less concerned for the mischance, all trying wrongly to do right, all fawning at each other's feet like dumb, neglected lapdogs. Sometimes we catch an eye, this is our opportunity in the ages, and we wag our tail with a poor smile. Is that all? All? Only if you knew. But how can they know? They do not love us, the more fools we to squander life on the indifferent. But the morality of the thing, you will be glad to hear, is excellent, for it is only by trying to understand others that we can get our own hearts understood. And in matters of human feeling... The Clement Judge is the most successful pleader.